Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, February 13th, 2024, the 1119th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I want to get started today talking about a little bit of culture, a little bit about what's on TV, because last night, standard issue villagers on the uniparty left were treated to the return of one of their favorite television characters, host of the Daily Show on Comedy Central, Jon Stewart. Stewart, of course, was the longtime host of Comedy Central's Daily Show. 
He left in 2015 and was originally replaced by Trevor Noah, the South African quote unquote man of color who they brought in because we were doing 24 seven racisms at that point and everybody had to hire a person of color. And everyone pretended that was very progressive and very important. But despite Trevor Noah's colorfulness, The Daily Show basically lost all of its cultural impact. And after Trevor Noah left, they have tried a series of hosts. None of them have taken off. And now with the Uniparty left searching for a voice, trying to be taken seriously again, doing whatever they can to create a narrative of excitement about the fake president, Joe Biden, and the party and agenda he supports, they have brought back Jon Stewart. Now, a lot of people, and I would have been one of them for maybe the first half of Jon Stewart's run on The Daily Show, a lot of people thought Jon Stewart was just about the most important voice in politics. He was on the left and the left imagined itself as the underdog. Those big, mean corporate conservatives, they controlled everything. They were all about giving tax handouts to their friends while getting rich themselves. They wanted to oppress women and people of color and gay people. We didn't even have trannies by then. I mean, people with gender dysphoria. Sorry. The Republicans were very, very mean to all these people. And of course, they wanted war. I mean, the Republican Party, the establishment was undeniably neocon at that point. Now, you might be a lifelong Republican. If you are, it's probably time, if you haven't already, to admit that it was maybe not a good idea to support neocons. Now, I'm not judging you. I had terrible political beliefs as well, and I was supporting the Uniparty left. So I'm in no place to judge you, but it's good that we all come to terms on the fact that both sides of the Uniparty are very bad and that at times over the last few decades, we have done our part in supporting one side of the Uniparty or another. This is a problem we all created together. But back during those years from 1999 to 2015, establishment Democrats were effectively able to portray themselves as the underdog. They had these underdog identity classes, women, minorities, gays, all of which they claimed were being oppressed. And then on the other side of things, you have these neocon warmongers trying to start wars all around the world while also being branded as the party that caters to the rich. So the uniparty left had a pretty easy run of it. And then you put someone out there like Jon Stewart, who seems to be very smart and very informed. He seems to be a likable enough guy, a decent man, somebody who seems like he has good priorities. He just wants everybody to be nice, to be friends. He wants to have a good country. He wants America to have good standing in the world. That's how he portrays himself. And throughout his run as The Daily Show host, he basically took the tenor of our politics and coarsened them to the maximum possible degree. People talk about Donald Trump having coarsened our politics, but those people don't realize that Donald Trump was just the response, finally, to this brand of politics that Jon Stewart popularized throughout that time. And Again, I say this as a person who diligently and committedly watched and supported Jon Stewart and took on many of those characteristics. 
He would cherry pick moments of video from hearings or from speeches where Republicans seem to be these uncultured and unevolved and uninformed radicals, but kind of in an anachronistic sense. They wanted everything to go back to how it was before, where they sat alone at the top of society. That's all they wanted because that's the only way they could ever be on top of society is if they controlled everything because they were actually just stupid and mean and racist and homophobic. They were all the things. And John Stewart essentially made a career and made himself a household name by cherry picking pieces of video or different comments and portraying them in the worst possible light to make Republicans look stupid to the maximum possible degree. Now, of course, the uniparty right media has tried to do that to the uniparty left, but for a long time, they just weren't funny. There weren't really any funny people representing the viewpoint of the uniparty right, and they were never able to properly attack the uniparty left because everything they would have attacked the uniparty left on, anything true and good that they could use to attack the uniparty left, was something they themselves could be accused of being responsible for. They were pursuing the same uniparty agenda. They weren't interested in attacking the uniparty left. They weren't interested in winning. They were interested in being effective, controlled opposition, which meant for many of them trying to cater to people like Jon Stewart so that they wouldn't be made fun of as much. And of course, most people know who was most successful at this, and that was no name himself, John McCain. Now, over the years, a big portion of the Republican establishment has tried to associate itself with this sort of centrism that fans of The Daily Show might approve of. And you can see that that strategy is still effective. Ask members of the Uniparty left what they think about Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney or Mitt Romney, and they will repeat the standard issue villager slogan. They'll say, well, I don't agree with their politics, but I think what they're doing is actually quite heroic. They have the courage to stand up to Donald Trump in the Republican Party because, of course, they believe that's what it's all about. Donald Trump just dominates people and destroys them. It's not that anybody agrees with Donald Trump. They're just afraid of Donald Trump and hoping to weather the Donald Trump storm so that they can once again bring the Republican establishment back to its proper role as the Washington generals to the Democrat Party's Harlem Globetrotters. Yes, they will always lose and the agenda will continue to march forward, but they will look like they provided some real competition. And we'll get to some more fun with the Uniparty right in just a few minutes. But they have decided to bring Jon Stewart back to host The Daily Show every Monday night. It's just going to be a one night a week thing. Jon Stewart on The Daily Show, it's going to be kind of an event. It's something you look forward to all week. Now that there are no more NFL games starring Taylor Swift, I would wonder who the audience for this would be. But the truth is, I know who the audience of this would be, and it would be people like me from 15 years ago who never woke up and never thought, despite everything that's going on, that they might be wrong about a bunch of things they don't know anything about. So the Uniparty left, they have some real problems. They don't have effective messengers out there. Their leading political figures cannot properly communicate 
a message that makes their argument. They certainly can't send out the fake president. They can't send out the fake vice president. They can't send out the fake press secretary. They're basically demoting her and making John Kirby more of the fake administration's spokesperson. They can't very well send Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi out there. I mean, they do. It's just not helpful for them. They don't really have Adam Schiff or Eric Swalwell. It's hard to take those guys seriously at this point, isn't it? That's true, even for people on the uniparty left. You have to basically be a lunatic, a uniparty left extremist to still want to hear from Adam Schiff. And it's kind of funny to think about this realignment because committed uniparty leftists, people still supporting Joe Biden not to defeat Donald Trump, but because they think it's a really, really good idea. These are about the fringiest characters in our society right now. People think that the fringiest characters are those people talking about clones or how Joe Biden's dead or Tartaria or something like that. And there is no doubt that some of those people are a little bit out there. But I would absolutely rather hear from them than somebody who actually thinks Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. Investigating scientific research by the military in deep underground military bases definitely makes way more sense than believing Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. But one of those domains of discovery is considered absolute conspiracy stuff and the other one is something that our experts and our cultural leaders repeat on television ad nauseum and our quote unquote elected representatives affirm all the time when they call Joe Biden president. You want to talk about victims of misinformation and dangerous extremists. I'm far more concerned about the mindset that would convince someone to go on believing that Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. And it turns out that's the exact audience that John Stewart is meant to appeal to. He has returned to convince those people that their beliefs are totally normal and to convince the rest of the country that those beliefs are not only popular, but they're smart and funny as well. But see, here's the thing. John Stewart's methods can only work if there are people out there who take him seriously. Now, how do you make yourself seem serious right now while still working for the enemy? And no, the answer is not go interview Vladimir Putin for two hours. Haha, <laughs> I'm just kidding. If that triggered you, you got some issues. Well, the way to seem objective and reasonable right now, while also representing the viewpoint of the uniparty left, is to participate in the takedown of Joe Biden based on, quote unquote, his age. Here is John Stewart from his return to The Daily Show last night. I present to you a one man show <laughs> about what Joe Biden's advisors were doing when he turned around and went back to the podium. The show is called No! Do not go back! Please! But he went back! That Biden was referring to Sisi, the president of Egypt, not Mexico. Unless it was even worse than that, and he thinks the president of Mexico is named Sisi. I mean, that is just grade A comedy right there. Four days later, you just repeat the jokes that everyone made online. 
Will this format work for 2024? Only if you're a liberal trapped in 2010. And as I said, that's exactly who he's meant to cater to. But think about what he's doing here. He's talking to the people who have been most consistently supportive of the fake president, Joe Biden, for 37 months now. And he is helping the mainstream uniparty left let their supporters know that it is okay to start letting go of Joe Biden. Guys, we're all just going to let Joe Biden down gently. John Stewart's here to let you know that it's okay to make fun of Joe Biden a little bit. Now, are you going to make fun of him for his five decades of political corruption? Are you going to make fun of him for what his own daughter calls in her own diary inappropriate showers? No. Are you going to make fun of him for having a son who the entire nation has seen naked, doing things with hookers, smoking crack, waving around a gun, making racist comments and selling out America's interests to Ukraine and various foreign adversaries? No. Are you going to make fun of him for his terrible performance as fake president? No, you're not going to do any of those things. And you're definitely never going to talk about how Joe Biden was mentored for three decades in politics by a Klan leader. None of those things will ever be mentioned by Jon Stewart. But what he will mention is that Joe Biden is old and Joe Biden's aides get worried whenever Joe Biden goes back to a microphone. Did he mix up a couple names? Yes, he did. Oh, gosh. What could be scarier than that? They never cared before, but now it's a huge issue because now they can argue. Well, yeah, Joe Biden's old and he says the wrong things all the time. But you know who else is old? Donald Trump. So if you're going to talk about how Joe Biden's old, well, you got to make sure Donald Trump can't get elected. We will actually give you a replacement for Joe Biden if you make sure that Donald Trump won't get elected. John Stewart is there trying to win back this notion that he is an objective observer of American politics, just wanting what's best for all reasonable people on both sides. And so to do that, he has to pile on this coordinated media effort to diminish Joe Biden in the minds of his own supporters so that they will be willing to swap out Joe Biden. Jonathan Martin had a big article in Politico today. And the thrust of his article was that MAGA conspiracy theorists think that the uniparty left is going to remove and replace Joe Biden. But not only is that not true, it can't even happen. It's just impossible. And it's a conspiracy theory to think that it can happen. Here are some snippets from Jonathan Martin's article in Politico. The headline of that article, by the way, is get used to it. Biden isn't going anywhere. He says, Put directly, Democrats had their chance to speak out against Biden running for re-election at nearly 82. They failed to do it, and there is no they now poised to intervene. The short answer as to why Biden is almost certain to be the Democratic nominee again is Donald Trump. The former president effectively controls both parties. Trump is the Democrats' best fundraiser, organizer, mobilizer, and importantly, force for unity. He is the adhesive that binds a coalition that ranges from the DSA, that's Democrat Socialists of America, to Bush Republicans who are about to go over a decade since having voted for the nominee of their 
parentheses old party. And that's a great point. These neocons, the Lincoln Project style people, the Ron supporters, the Nikki Haley supporters, they have been going against their own parties, ostensibly their own party's nominee since 2015. That's nine years that they have been actively opposing the leader of what they consider their own party. But back to Jonathan Martin, he says this centrality of Trump and Democrats determination to block his return is what insulates Biden within his own party. The proverbial moat around the Biden White House is stocked with very classy Trump branded alligators. No major Democrat dares question the president because that risks weakening him and helping Trump. And Martin has described this as being the Democrats position for well over a year now. They had a chance to get Biden to step down so that someone could come in and replace him. But they didn't take that opportunity because the overriding notion within the party is that any negativity directed toward who's in office right now, the fake president in particular, makes it more likely that Donald Trump will win in 2024. And of course, all of this only exists and only matters in a world where our elections are legitimate. We obviously know that not to be true, but Jonathan Martin apparently doesn't know that to be true, or at least just denies it because he is a supporter of the Uniparty. These people tell themselves, this is just how things are. This is how they always have been. This is how they always will be. Many of them support the global regime unwittingly. They don't even understand what it is they support. They are just obsessively committed to supporting the control by elites. Nothing for them is more important than making sure people like them. And by that, they always mean college educated elitists continue to control the country. Now, Martin obviously makes no secret of the fact that he cannot stand Donald Trump or his supporters. He thinks everyone is stupid. They're all getting tricked. They're all conspiracy theorists. They have no idea how things work. So he is directing this article at them, but he's essentially making the argument that I and others have made. There's going to be a public effort to remove Joe Biden. We will get to see that. And that effort will ultimately fail, leaving Joe Biden as a candidate running against Donald Trump in this obviously fake election, who has been weakened by his own party. Martin argues that the only way Joe Biden could actually be removed is through some serious medical event that cripples Joe Biden, making him unable to run, or that Biden and Dr. Jill decide for themselves that Joe is not going to run again. And Martin assumes there is no way that's going to happen. So he basically just waves away the possibility that Biden could be replaced at the convention. Despite pining for it and despite describing it in the same terms as we read yesterday, the excitement about the convention and what it would mean if there was no nominee and the nominee would be decided there on the floor at the Democrat National Convention. What could be a better TV spectacle? This is how they would coronate their new candidate who's about to take on Donald Trump. Oh, think of the debates, the Gavin Newsom, Donald Trump debate or the Michelle Obama, Donald Trump debate or the Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump debate or the Gretchen Whitmer, Donald Trump debate or the Josh Shapiro, Donald Trump debate. (laughs) You just keep going on and on and on. 
They would love to have that, the television spectacle. That might actually give them a story they can sell to the American public. This convention battle that eventually yielded this very special nominee, that has propelled this nominee to the front of the pack. Look at all the polls changing. People finally deciding, I wasn't in on Joe Biden, but I knew I couldn't vote for Donald Trump. I was thinking of staying home, but now I'm going to go vote for Gavin Newsom. Jonathan Martin just doesn't think it's possible because no one has the courage to stand up to Joe Biden and tell him that he can't run. There's no one in the party who's going to have the power to make Joe Biden duck out, including, he says, Barack Obama, because the Barack Obama people and the Joe Biden people, well, they just don't get along like everyone thinks. Barack Obama, you see, just doesn't have that kind of sway over Joe Biden. And that's one of those give me a break type things. Jonathan Martin, of course, is a total normie who thinks that politics are just unfolding before our eyes and that he's at the cutting edge of understanding them while he's reporting about things that have already happened and, of course, already been decided. It actually makes me feel bad for these guys pretending that all of it is real. There's a reason that ESPN doesn't cover professional wrestling, and it's because no one believes professional wrestling is fake. Now, They still cover the soap operas called the NBA and the NFL, but people still believe that those sports are actually real. And hey, maybe they're partially real. Maybe they're totally real. I don't think they are, but maybe they are. Regardless, the point stands about the WWE. It would be very strange to see sports journalists, which is kind of an oxymoron, but it would be very strange to see sports journalists covering the WWE as if the outcomes of matches were always in doubt. And as if the viewers, the fans of the WWE, the people who follow it all the time, moment to moment, were receiving all the same information that the people who run the WWE are receiving. That's not the case at all. The people who run the WWE basically construct it like television seasons. They know what's going to happen from one event to the next. They know where the storylines are going to go. Their storylines aren't dependent on who wins one of the matches that everyone knows to be fake and rigged. However, you might feel for a serious sports journalist who would be covering the WWE without understanding that it is all just a TV show. That's how I feel about Jonathan Martin. Here's how the article wraps up. All the Biden reporting indicates he is going to run again, and it's impossible to find a single prominent Democrat who on the record would prefer otherwise. Yet too many Republicans don't believe the coverage, don't see it at all because they live in separate information silos or apparently think the political press is on some vast conspiracy of silence until the hour when Scooby-Doo style, the mask is pulled off to reveal the new nominee. And of course, this is the product of these people thinking that MAGA supporters, America First supporters, Donald Trump supporters are stupid. Jonathan Martin is stupid. This is not what people think. He is either intentionally misrepresenting the view or he simply doesn't know because no one in his little information silo ever actually bothers finding out. Of course, we don't believe the media coverage. What could be more obvious? But we don't believe they want to replace Joe Biden because we missed the mainstream media coverage saying otherwise. We do it because we follow these persistent trends that don't go away. And all of those trends track toward a Joe Biden replacement, including 
this obviously coordinated takedown effort happening right now in front of our eyes. Now, Jonathan Martin can deny that that's happening and can deny that Joe Biden will be replaced. And again, I think they're going to be stuck with Biden and I hope that they are stuck with Biden. So Jonathan Martin's not even wrong in his conclusions about what will happen to Biden, but he continues to misunderstand everything about why this is discussed in the first place. Let's continue. I know it sounds like crackers stuff. How else to explain the persistent Michelle Obama theory, though? Sure, some of that is merely for clicks. Biden just doesn't move product on the right like the Obamas. But because of that hunger, even some well-educated voters think there's some truth to the possibility. After all, they keep hearing it on television. Ah, Jonathan Martin, you're so smart and we're so stupid. Gosh, if only you had told me that right at the beginning. And then you can go back and look at the beginning. And uh, he does tell you that. It's the same question with the come on, who's actually in charge at the White House question, which is also hot on the right. So many Republicans have been fed BS about an Obama conspiracy that when you tell them it's Biden himself and half a dozen staffers they've never heard of, well, the disappointment on their faces is apparent. Jonathan Martin, let me break it to you, and I'm sorry to be the one to have to do this, but the disappointment on their faces is with your retardation because you are supposed to be an expert on this stuff, but it turns out you're retarded. You're not saddening Republicans by reporting to them that Joe Biden really is running it all with six staffers they've never heard of. You're disappointing them because you are saying that you actually believe that, which means that you, my friend, are retarded. Martin writes, there's another driver of this switcheroo fantasy, Hollywood. Because of media polarization and either not understanding or that Harris axiom way overestimating the opposition, Republicans are willing to buy fantastical plots about Democrats. As one conservative friend points out, the body of political shows this century has been dominated by programs like 24, Homeland, and House of Cards, where the deep state is all too real. Sorry, folks, Washington isn't nearly that fun. I tested all these theories on a handful of smart figures in both parties. Senator John Hickenlooper, Democrat of Colorado, who has no lack of mainstream Republican friends, suggested I was missing one projection. Are you sure they're not just frustrated they can't change their candidate? He asked. That is how detached these people are. They think that MAGA conspiracy theorists believe there is an effort to replace Joe Biden because we are really projecting our desire to replace Donald Trump. How many years will our betters, these very, very smart people, these very serious intellectuals, how many years will they continue to be wrong about absolutely everything while thinking we are the stupid ones? Not that I'm complaining. I am absolutely overjoyed that our opposition is so incompetent. And I absolutely hope that John Stewart will help keep them that way. And I fully expect him to. Now, try this segue on for size. This is Jon Stewart confronting Tucker Carlson on Tucker's show with Paul Begala on CNN back in 2004. This is from Crossfire. Welcome back to Crossfire. Let's 
Spire. We're talking to John Stewart, who was just lecturing us on our moral inferiority. John, you're bumming us out. Tell us, what do you think of the Bill O'Reilly vibrator story? No. I'm sorry? I don't. I'm here to, to confront you because we need help from the media, and they're hurting us. I made a special effort to come on the show today because I have mentioned uh, this show as being uh, uh, bad. <laughs> it's not so much that it's bad as it's hurting America. <laughs> so I, I wanted to but come he here today let me, and say, wait, wait, no, I just, let me here, here, here's just one, what I wanted to tell you guys. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> stop, 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 stop hurting America. Okay. I watch your show every day. And it kills me. I can tell you love it's it. So, oh, it's so painful to watch. Your partisan, um, what do you call it, hacks. Wait, John, wait. Like, let me, let me, you let me, have a responsibility to the public discourse. And you, you fail miserably. I think you're a good comedian. I think your lectures are boring. You're on CNN. My, the show that leads into me is puppets making crank phone calls. <laughs> what is wrong with you? It's someone who watches your show and cannot take it anymore. I just can't you fail need to get a miserably. School, I think you need to go to one. Now this is theater. I mean, it's it's it obvious. Is, no, no, it How old are you? Thirty-five. And you wear a bow tie. Yeah, I do. I do. So, I hate so, so at all. I, I, mean, I do think you're more fun on your show. Uh, just my opinion. But can, okay, you just, Zach, John Stewart goes, one of his fans. You're as big a dick on your show as you are on any show. Now, to be clear, obviously, they put together like a highlight reel from that episode of Crossfire. I'm not the one who edited that. That is just on YouTube. But that was one of the big historical moments of John Stewart being that objective, reasonable, centrist sitting there between Paul Begala and Tucker Carlson and taking on the mainstream media on both sides. Oh, it's so bad that you're arguing like this on television. You're both partisan hacks, not like Jon Stewart, who is objective and smart and funny and reasonable and just cares about the American people. He's not saying that Republicans are all stupid and racist as a partisan hack. He's saying it as an objective observer and also a smart, funny person. So Tucker Carlson was on the receiving end of that. That was 20 years ago. Now Tucker Carlson is the leading voice of the new mainstream media. And for that, we should all praise him as absolutely the most important, famous person, finally just edging out Taylor Swift and Joe Rogan. And I promise I will stop trying to trigger you about Tucker Carlson at some point, probably after you are no longer triggered by my comments on Tucker Carlson and return to treating him just as you would treat any other mainstream media figure. One of the key realizations throughout this period is that it's probably time to stop creating heroes out of strangers on the television. Now, if you listen to my show on Friday, I talked about Tucker Carlson and the hero worship directed at Tucker Carlson. And I talked about how I thought his interview with Vladimir Putin while Putin was fantastic. And I'm glad the interview exists was not a particularly good performance from Tucker Carlson. Now, maybe he's part of an info op. Maybe he was just playing stupid to get Putin's responses out in a certain way. There's lots of excuses you can give him. And I'm not here to convince you that Tucker Carlson is a bad guy, but there's a reason why his audience is trapped in an informational past and just finding things out now that they could have learned two years ago if they were listening to people who weren't in the mainstream media. The primary complaint is not that Tucker Carlson is evil. It's not that he's a bad guy. It's not that he's an intelligence asset. It's just 
that he keeps his audience in an informational past. And unless there is proof otherwise, you have to at least entertain the possibility that it is his job to play controlled opposition. It is his job to be an information gatekeeper. And if that is the case, and we fail to recognize that because we are too busy constantly genuflecting and praising our new media God, then we are failing to embrace these emergent truths as we awaken. Now, I made this case in a few places over the days following the release of that interview, and a lot of people were upset by it, and then other people totally supported it, and it kind of skewed more toward people supporting that viewpoint as time went on. But to be fair, and I do want to be fair, let's talk about something Tucker Carlson did that was really good and that was ahead of the pack. You might remember in the weeks leading up to the stolen election of 2020, Tucker Carlson sat down with a man named Tony Bobolinsky, and he put that interview out on Fox News before the election when it mattered. But it seemed back then like the entire effect was blunted. Tony Bobolinsky came out of nowhere. He told his story, not only to Tucker Carlson, but he also gave a press conference. And then all of that kind of disappeared along with Tony Bobolinsky. And we haven't really heard much about the guy until today when Bobolinsky's opening statement in a hearing before the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability and the House Committee on the Judiciary was released to the public. And here is that statement. At the very top of this statement, by the way, it says embargoed until 10.05 a.m. on February 13th, 2024. Now, we are being told that this is an opening statement that Bobolinsky is making today as part of the House's impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. This is from his deposition, but I can't be certain that's true. I don't know when this deposition was actually given. And I've got to say, I think it's a little odd that it says embargoed until 10.05 a.m. Eastern on February 13th, 2024, if this statement was given this morning, the same day. Anyhow, chairman, ranking members and members of Congress, thank you for this opportunity to speak with you. I'm happy that the American people will finally hear the facts and evidence that I've been trying to outline for over four years, all backed up and supported by emails, texts documents, records, pictures, and other evidence. The facts we are going to discuss today are important for America's national security, and I can only hope that everyone in this room and all representatives and officers of the U.S. government take them seriously. My name is Tony Bobolinsky. I'm a proud American citizen who has honorably served the United States in several capacities. For over six years, I was an officer in the United States Navy's elite naval nuclear power training command as a decorated master training specialist instructor. I later served as the command's chief technology officer, where I held a Q security clearance from the Department of Energy and from the National Security Agency. When I left NNPTC, I was the number one ranked direct input officer in the entire command in my final Navy fitness report or fit rep. I'm here today out of a duty to God and country in a nonpartisan manner with only one party in mind, the party I served with honor and gratitude, the United States of America. While I have made a few campaign contributions over the years to Democrats, such as Congressman Ro Khanna, 
a member of the oversight committee. I am not a political person. I come from a family with a long history of distinguished service in our nation's military. I grew up the son of a career naval officer, Commander Robert Bobolinsky, whom I loved dearly. I could not be prouder of my father's long and distinguished service to our nation. His father, Alex Bobolinsky, served our country in the Air Force for four years. I'm also the grandson of Army Intelligence Officer Colonel Fred B. Keller, Jr., who for more than 37 years fearlessly defended the United States all over the world and served in three different wars. My only brother, retired Commander Mike Bobolinsky, is a 28-year combat-serving naval flight officer, and my only sister, Stacia Bobolinsky, has spent the last 18 years serving U.S. military veterans across the country through the Veterans Administration to demonstrate her and our family's gratitude to everyone who has risked their lives defending America. I share my extensive U.S. military roots and background with you because they are the lens through which I view this exceptional country and my responsibility to it. My deep commitment to America is also the reason I have elected to place myself and my family in the public eye to tell the truth before you today. That comes at great cost to my privacy and to my personal security and that of my family, among other things. However, I am happy to pay that cost. I am blessed to have been born and to grow up in the greatest country on earth. I take that seriously. Having been to over 50 countries around the world, I say that with the highest confidence. For nearly four years, I've tried to tell the American people the truth about serious corruption at the top of their government. In return, I have been falsely accused of being a purveyor of Russian disinformation and a political surrogate. My continuous efforts to inform the American people of the facts have been actively suppressed by both the United States government and the so-called mainstream media. I want to be crystal clear from my direct personal experience and from what I have subsequently come to learn. It is clear to me that Joe Biden was, quote unquote, the brand being sold by the Biden family, his family's foreign influence peddling operation from China to Ukraine and elsewhere sold out to foreign actors who were seeking to gain influence and access to Joe Biden and the United States government. Joe Biden was more than a participant in and beneficiary of his family's business. He was an enabler, despite being buffered by a complex scheme to maintain plausible deniability. And if you have been following the Biden crime family saga over these last three and a half years or more, you will have seen that phrase pop up quite a bit. It featured prominently in the Marco Polo report on the Biden laptop, and this was always their strategy. You can see this strategy replicated throughout any study of the political criminals in America and the regime in general. We are told we see conspiracies where there are none, but it is actually their strategy to create conspiracies, to create a system with a bunch of levels and a bunch of moving parts so that no one can ever really be held accountable for the worst things these people do. And now we're in funny territory because, of course, any standard issue villager would deny the possibility. They would say that I sound crazy for believing that these systems exist and that these systems exist to facilitate a criminal enterprise. And they hold on to that view no matter how elaborately you can show them that these systems exist and that they exist for the benefit of a criminal enterprise. 
And it's not even that they think this stuff doesn't happen. They accuse Donald Trump of this stuff all the time without any evidence, which is why the court cases always end up failing. But they think there's no way that their side could ever be responsible for anything like this. All the levels, all the moving parts are what helped them create plausible deniability. Back to Bobolinsky. The only reason any of these international business transactions took place with tens of millions of dollars flowing directly to the Biden family was because Joe Biden was in high office. The Biden family business was Joe Biden, period. Other key players have made this point clear as well. Hunter Biden himself has adamantly stated it in a variety of communications, as did another Biden family business associate, Devin Archer, in his testimony last year. Foreign nationals on the other side of these transactions, including from China, Ukraine, and Romania, have also explained how and why these transactions took place. Once again, I would call that extensive evidence. The Chinese Communist Party, through its surrogate, China Energy Company Limited, or CEFC, a CCP-linked Chinese energy conglomerate, successfully sought to infiltrate and compromise Joe Biden and the Obama-Biden White House. This process started in the fourth quarter of 2015 and continued through when Joe Biden left office in January 2017 to March of 2018 when the CEFC chairman, Yi, was detained for corruption in China, never to be seen again. Note that on October 21st, 2015, Joe Biden announced that he would not seek the presidency in 2016. It is not a coincidence that CEFC's aggressive approach to the Biden family happened around the same time. It is also not a coincidence that CEFC used the Biden family's weakest link, Hunter Biden, and the promise of large sums of money to the tune of tens of millions of dollars initially, and eventually the profits from investing billions of dollars in the United States and around the world. Before we begin this in-depth testimony, under penalty of perjury and charges of obstruction of Congress, I would like to highlight a few critically important facts. Number one, Joe Biden was aware of the CEFC transaction, enabled it, and had a constitutional responsibility and obligation to the American people to shut it down before it began. This is because CEFC had been identified as a known surrogate of the Chinese Communist Party by the U.S. government and prosecutors in the Southern District of New York as far back as 2016, possibly earlier. I would encourage Congress to gather all of the exact facts and dates. It is clear to me that alarm bells should have been going off in the Obama-Biden White House and that Joe Biden should have been aware that his own administration had red flagged CEFC as a tool of the Chinese Communist Party. This should have made any business transaction with CEFC a non-starter. I personally met with Joe Biden in Los Angeles in May of 2017 multiple times to discuss the broad contours of our business dealings. The only reason Joe Biden met with me privately during the Milken Institute Global Conference and seated me at his head table was because I was a business associate of the Biden family. Now, as with the rest of the Biden crime family's corruption throughout this period, a lot of this is laid out in exacting detail in the report on the Biden laptop by Marco Polo. 
You can see it for yourself. Go to hereshunter.com. And in the search bar, you can just type in Bob Alinsky. His name appears throughout the 600 plus page report. But let's go back to the Bob Alinsky opening statement. We are at number two. Joe Biden's immediate family members were enriched to the tune of tens of millions of dollars from some of our most dangerous adversaries, including the Chinese Communist Party and players from Russia, Ukraine, Romania, Kazakhstan, and other foreign nations and entities. It is my educated belief, dating back to Q clearance briefings I received in the Navy and continuing through recent discussions with experts, that under U.S. corruption laws, political officeholders can be held as responsible as the immediate family members who are receiving money directly. This makes common sense, and Americans understand this. The facts we are going to discuss today appear to me to present disturbing evidence, which these committees should thoroughly investigate, with respect to possible violations by Joe Biden of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, that's FARA, Anti-Corruption and Public Integrity Statutes, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. That is RICO. That is what Donald Trump is being charged under down in Georgia by Fonnie Willis, whose entire case is falling apart because of the fact that she was dating her lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade, before assigning him to this case. And she met with the Biden White House, etc. It is a bit of a sideshow, which is why I have not spent much time at all on that. The substance of the case isn't there. I don't care about Fonnie Willis's personal life. The entire thing is obviously an act of corruption and complicity. Fonnie Willis, of course, should go down for that alone. So I don't feel it necessary to devote much time to the soap opera aspects on this show. But the idea behind Rico is that an organization is set up to effectively commit criminal acts. And all the members of the criminal conspiracy are working in coordination to complete the criminal act. Donald Trump is accused of this. And of course, Joe Biden is actually guilty of it. Donald Trump also has a massive civil RICO case filed against Hillary Clinton and countless others. I referred to it the other day on Badlands as RICO Grande, and I am of the mind that the evidence compiled in these special counsel investigations will eventually and ultimately be included in that Rico Grande effort that lays out a great deal of this deep state corruption. But let's keep going with Bobolinsky. Number three, the Biden family, Joe's son, Hunter, and his brother, Jim, knowingly and aggressively defrauded me as the CEO of Sinohawk Holdings and as a member of Oneida Holdings LLC at the end of July 2017. They put Joe Biden and the rest of the Biden family smack in the middle of a $9 billion transaction between Russia and China involving Qatar, specifically the Qatar Investment Authority and helped CEFC navigate through various issues before Patrick Ho, a CEFC executive, was arrested for corruption in New York in November 2017. Joe Biden's status as the head of the family served an enforcement role. For example, when Hunter stated deliberately that his father Joe was sitting right next to him while demanding immediate payment of the $10 million CEFC had committed to the Biden family as well as when Hunter demanded CEFC circumvent Sinohawk Holdings. 
the Biden family violated their fiduciary duties to Sinohawk and Oneida as they enriched themselves at the CEFC trough. So Bobolinsky is claiming that they basically attempted to cut him out. And you have to wonder if he was being set up as one of those layers of plausible deniability. Number four, United States law enforcement appears to have been singularly unwilling to speak with me or to hear the facts we will be discussing today. I have never been contacted to provide testimony nor asked to speak with anyone connected with Joe Biden's administration including his Department of Justice, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Internal Revenue Service, or local law enforcement. That includes U.S. Attorney David Weiss for the District of Delaware, or any of the several grand juries I now know were convened after my name became publicly known. On October 23, 2020, I voluntarily walked into the Washington field office of the FBI with several phones containing years of encrypted communications between me and numerous members of the Biden family and their associates. That conversation, which was subject to false statement statutes, lasted many hours and was never followed up upon by anyone in the government or law enforcement in any way. Rather, when the House Ways and Means Committee recently released the FBI 302 report of that meeting, Hunter Biden's lawyers laughably tried to use a single note-taking error by a junior FBI agent to accuse me, falsely, of lying about my attendance at a meeting with Hunter Biden and CEFC in Miami. I was crystal clear to the agent in my interview that I was physically in Miami during that time for other things and did not attend the actual CEFC meeting. Hunter Biden's lawyers should focus their energy on the facts and the extensive indictments Hunter is fighting versus creating smoke screens and distractions with their empty threats. I have only told the truth. I continue to tell the truth. I have the facts. And as we will discuss today, I also have the receipts to back them up. Bobolinsky concludes saying, I sit here before two of the premier committees of Congress, oversight and judiciary. I implore each and every one of you to remove your partisan hats today and focus on one party, the United States of America. I hope your focus will be on a thorough and extensive investigation and exposure of all the facts and evidence and on answering the question of how we as a country allowed the White House to be infiltrated by our most existential adversary, the Chinese Communist Party. I also hope you will hold the complicit parties, including Joe Biden, accountable for their actions, as well as enact new laws that prevent this kind of deep corruption from ever happening again. God bless America. I am ready for your questions. So we will see if anything new emerges from this testimony. I kind of doubt it. As I said, a lot of this is laid out in the report on the Biden laptop. Tony Bobolinsky talked to Tucker Carlson back in 2020. He did that press conference. There's a lot out there about what Tony Bobolinsky witnessed, what he was involved in. He's presented a bunch of the evidence. The communications he shared were verified as authentic. We will see where this goes, but we should note the timing. The timing is not some accident or coincidence. It comes just days after the Robert Herr special counsel report, which has now allowed the public to accept the notion that Joe Biden really is frail and demented. He's not all there. and Maybe he's just a little bit corrupt. John Stewart is helping to provide the soft landing, but it's important for us 
to keep pushing on what is actually wrong with the fake president. We can't just let his supporters get away with this. And I'm talking about the people on the uniparty right as well. As Jonathan Martin described, the Biden coalition, this anti-Trump coalition, is everyone from the Democrat Socialists of America all the way up to Bush Republicans. All of them would like to find a soft landing for Joe Biden and replace him with someone else. And when the standard issue villagers on the uniparty left agree that maybe Joe Biden has lost a step, Maybe he's getting a little bit old and maybe just maybe he did a few wrong things over the years. None of it's all that bad. It's just kind of common political stuff. And you're actually rude for thinking of making a big deal about it. Well, that's when it's good to remind them that Joe Biden was mentored in politics for three decades by a Klansman and his history of corruption spans decades. He raised a family of degenerates who have engaged in the same awful behavior he has engaged in, and the regime still covers for him. Jonathan Martin said in that article, Joe Biden is a personally decent man with no major scandal in his White House. His gravest liability is his age, which may seal his fate and undo his legacy of having ousted Trump. That is Jonathan Martin from Politico claiming Joe Biden is a decent man whose White House has been scandal-free. We cannot let them memory hold this. Of course, the Biden family corruption does not stop with Joe Biden and associates enriching themselves by selling out American interests to our foreign adversaries. The illegitimate administration is also saddled with our immigration problem, our illegal alien problem. And we have a story today that is actually too funny to skip over, despite the fact that I think it is kind of ridiculous and maybe more noise than signal. But check this out from NBC 10 out of Boston. You'll only see here in NBC 10 Boston, a migrant family from Haiti is sharing their experience. They're searching for shelter in the Boston area and then recently found a host home in Brookline. And now they're looking for jobs. As NBC 10's Aaron Logan reports, they say these last few weeks have been life-changing. And the- It's been an emotional few weeks for Wildande Joseph and her husband. First, sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport. Then in Children's Hospital with their two-year-old daughter who got very sick. Me siento mal. Es muy difícil este she felt bad as any mother would. Now things are looking much brighter as they've been welcomed into Lisa Hillenbrand's Brookline apartment. Tu niña es muy alegre ahora. Sí, muy alegre. Cuando se levanta en la mañana, se dice, She says her daughter is very happy. When she wakes up in the morning, she says, hi, Lisa, and everyone starts the day smiling. It's a delight, and it's really fun having them. What I realized is there's so much prejudice against refugees, mostly because people don't know them. Lisa says she feels like she has her own personal chef, as Wildande loves cooking. In fact, her goal is to open up her own restaurant. The couple has their work permits and they've been taking English classes. They're open to work anywhere to save money for their future. In the meantime, they're enjoying their time with Lisa, their new friend for life. 
and their daughter's new grandmother. They are hardworking. They want to learn. They want to be successful. I feel great helping, and I get to understand the refugee crisis from the inside. Lisa says she's so impressed by the number of people she's met right here at Brookline Town Hall meetings who've been stepping up and hosting families. She's hopeful more will do the same in the coming days and weeks. In Brookline, Erin Logan, NBC10 Boston. All right, the need for more migrant shelters in Massachusetts is something we've been following really closely. You can find more information about this and find out how you can actually help on our website, NBC10Boston.com. Now that is presented as a very hopeful story of kindness. This older lady in the Boston area, out of the goodness of her heart, takes in these Haitian quote-unquote refugees who in exchange for this roof over their heads in her apartment help her out around the house. The lady feels like she has her own personal chef. Essentially, we have an impoverished island nation, impoverished, by the way, by the global regime and most particularly Hillary Clinton. And we have refugees escaping that poverty and migrating to America as part of this global migration project, which is really just a global slave trade. And they end up living for free with this older white woman who allows them to do her cooking for her. Now, this comes right on the heels of viral video of a Boston City Councilwoman named Julia Mejia talking about how Boston has run out of space to house illegals. So they actually want to have residents of Boston offering up their homes to house these illegal aliens. Um, Wellesley, Brookline, you know, cities and towns that have so much more resources um, than the city of Boston. Boston City Councilwoman Julia Mejia thinks more migrants can be placed outside of Boston. I think everybody needs to start opening up their doors because this is a shared responsibility. Controversy over the placement of surging immigrants comes as a new report links immigrants who settle in Massachusetts to economic benefits for the region. A shared responsibility. Just wait until they make that part of the law and then you just have to open your house to illegal aliens. You think it's impossible? Well, it's 2024. And thinking that that sort of thing is impossible by now should be off limits. You should just understand that Housing illegal aliens is part of their agenda, and they're going to accomplish it however they have to. Now, we talked quite a bit about this failed negotiation over the last few months to pass a border security bill, in quotes, that doesn't actually secure our border, at least not in a way that would stop millions of illegal immigrants from coming in each year as they have been. What it would do is increase the surveillance state at the border and then ultimately throughout the nation. And it would supply more personnel and resources in order to facilitate more entry of illegal aliens into the country through abuse of the asylum program. So that package was tied to the foreign aid package, the $110 billion the fake president had requested in order to continue the money laundering and weapons trafficking operation in order to protect the global regime's stronghold in Ukraine and elsewhere. $110 billion to protect these strongholds in current and upcoming fake foreign proxy wars. 
And we talked yesterday about how after that package had failed, the Senate began creating their own new package that would only have that four and eight around ninety five billion dollars worth of it so that they could continue funding Ukraine to the tune of sixty one billion dollars and then have billions more for Israel and Taiwan or the Indo-Pacific, as they continue calling it, to avoid stating that they're actively trying to protect, in quotes, Taiwan from China. You know, that country that has provably compromised the fake president, Joe Biden, for whatever reason, they have to pass this legislation. They are calling it like the most important bill they have ever passed, the most important vote they have ever taken. Here's Mitt Romney. Vote we will soon take to provide military weapons for Ukraine is the most important vote we will ever take as United States senators. How is that possible? What could be hanging in the balance right now in Ukraine that would make this the most important vote they've ever taken as senators? It's like they think that their whole system is going to die if this doesn't get passed. And hey, maybe it will. Maybe the global regime maintaining its grip over the regime's own ancestral homeland in ancient Khazaria actually is the entire point of this whole exercise. But that can't be it because that's a conspiracy theory. So Mitt Romney must be talking about something else. And maybe one day he'll tell us why funding for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan is the most important vote he's ever taken in the Senate, considering it's not for the sake of the American people. So that was Mitt Romney during last night's debate. And this is The Hill this morning. Here are the Senate Republicans who voted for the Ukraine package. The Senate passed a $95 billion emergency defense spending bill in an early morning vote Tuesday after 22 Republicans joined the majority of Senate Democrats to pass the package. The 70 to 29 vote took place shortly after 5 a.m. following an all night filibuster by conservatives who objected to the bill. It comes nearly four months after President Biden sent his request to Congress to fund Ukraine in its war against Russia and nearly a week after the dramatic collapse of a bipartisan border security package that would have unlocked aid for Kiev. That is a unipartisan border security package. Two Democrats, Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon and Peter Welch of Vermont, voted no, pointing to concerns over Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's military campaign in Gaza. Well, that's anti-Semitic. Senator Bernie Sanders also voted against the bill due to the same concerns. Two members of GOP leadership, McConnell and Senate Majority Whip John Thune, the second ranking Republican, backed the measure. McConnell has been one of the foremost supporters of U.S. support for Ukraine. Senators John Barrasso and Steve Daines, also part of the GOP leadership team, voted no. Here are the 22 Republicans who voted in support of the spending bill. And of course, this spending bill, as we outlined yesterday, is also the predicate for a Donald Trump impeachment in the future. So this is the future Donald Trump impeachment bill that these 22 Republicans voted to pass. John Boozman of Arkansas, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, John Cornyn of Texas, Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, Mike Crapo of Idaho, Joni Ernst of Iowa, Chuck Grassley of Iowa, John Hoven of North Dakota, John Kennedy of 
of Louisiana. You know, that good old down home foghorn leghorn senator who's so funny that he gets to vote with the globalists all the time and nobody cares. Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, Jerry Moran of Kansas, Lisa Murkowski, James Risch of Idaho, Mitt Romney of Utah, Mike Rounds of South Dakota, Dan Sullivan of Alaska, John Thune of South Dakota, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Roger Wicker of Mississippi, and Todd Young of Indiana. Almost all of those people are pretty avowedly anti-Trump. It is very strange to see two senators from North Dakota, two senators from Idaho, two senators from South Dakota, two senators from Alaska, two senators from Louisiana, all voting to pass this legislation. 22 Republicans signed on with 48 Democrats. And like the package released last week and rejected, this is simply a unipartisan compromise. This is both sides of the uniparty working together to advance the uniparty agenda. They are giving nearly $100 billion away to do their part in funding the protection of this global regime proxy state in total opposition to the will and desire of the American people. And there are no concessions here anywhere. It is only doing the bidding of that global regime. This is the uniparty in action. They are taking on their final form. They are finally showing themselves to the American public. Hey, we work together for a global agenda. It's not for the United States. It's not for the American people. And oh, by the way, your elections don't count. So you can't even consider holding us accountable. You kind of knew it the whole time. You played along anyway. But there's no more playing around now. Here we are. We are the Uniparty, and we no longer care if you know it. Nearly half of the Republican senators just joined the Democrats in voting to pass a package that includes within it mechanisms to tie a future president's hands about continuing to fund a war effort in a war that would be stopped completely without the funding. If you want the dying to stop, you stop funding Ukraine. They're trying to make it so that Donald Trump cannot negotiate a peaceful end to that quote unquote war. And if he does, or if he decides not to continue funding it, they have what they believe to be a predicate for Donald Trump's impeachment. And 22 Republican senators joined Democrats in advancing it. Now, you might say, well, there's no way that's going to pass the House. Mike Johnson has said it's dead on arrival. And that's true. He has said that. But that doesn't mean they're done. Last night, The Hill published an article with the headline, Speaker Johnson fires warning shot as Senate prepares to vote on Ukraine aid. And at the end of the article, they write this. Talking about Johnson here, his rejection of the Senate bill, however, does not mean the package is completely finished in the House. Lawmakers could force the supplemental to the floor through a discharge petition, which requires support from a majority of the chamber, meaning bipartisan participation. Democrats have a quote unquote ripe discharge from last year's debt limit showdown that already has 213 signatures. Five more would be a majority of the chamber. Some progressive lawmakers, though, are likely to remove their names from the petition if it is used to move the foreign aid package in protest of the inclusion of aid for Israel without conditions. That would mean more Republican signatures are needed, a heavy lift, since signing a discharge petition while in the majority is a significant swipe at leadership. 
Senators Tom Tillis of North Carolina and Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma said they have spoken with House lawmakers about using a discharge petition to move the foreign aid bill, according to news outlets. So here again, we have the uniparty in motion. We have this Republican majority in the House that was supposed to save everything. Those establishment Republicans were going to get in there with the majority and they were going to hold old Joe Biden's feet to the fire. And here we are 13 and a half months later, and they have done virtually nothing except continued to pass spending bills that the Uniparty demands. This is from May 19th of last year at realclearpolicy.com. Five facts on discharge petitions. Let's understand this because it seems like they are going to bring this up and attempt to use it. They need to get their fake foreign proxy war funding passed by whatever means necessary. They're going to want to tie it in to those government shutdown negotiations an omnibus package, throw it in there with the Trump impeachment predicate, just mix it all up, jumble it up and pass the whole thing. But that doesn't mean they're not going to try every other possibility in the meantime. And as I've been saying for months, At some point, I imagine this ends with a motion to vacate that removes Mike Johnson and replaces him with a Democrat or somebody like Liz Cheney. People think it can't happen. I guess we'll find out. From the article last year, Real Clear Policy. As President Biden cuts his Asia Pacific trip short to return to Washington for face to face negotiations to lift the debt ceiling, Democrat members of the House of Representatives continue to call for using a discharge petition as a backup plan to raise if negotiations fail. This little known and rarely used legislative maneuver could bring a debt ceiling bill to the floor of the House of Representatives for a vote without the approval of congressional leadership. But what happens next remains to be seen. Here are the five facts about how the discharge petition could be used to pass the debt ceiling bill. Number one, a discharge petition is a way to bring a bill to the floor for consideration without a report from a committee. Under normal rules in the House of Representatives, any bill a member introduces is assigned to a committee for markup and review before it's allowed to come to the floor for a final vote. But for legislation that's been sitting in committee, For at least 30 days that the House is in session, a discharge petition can be used to force the bill to the floor. The petition discharges the committee from further consideration of the bill, giving more power to individual members of the House and taking power away from the leadership, the Speaker of the House, that typically assigns bills to committees and controls the legislative schedule. Now, in a future where proper function is restored to that body, if there is a future that encounters that, maybe this discharge petition is an effective thing for the people's representatives to be using if the leadership in the House obstructs the people's business from being heard or being acted upon. Maybe it's better that legislation that House leadership is ignoring can still be brought to the floor in case there actually is some consensus between two otherwise opposing parties. Now, I'm not saying that we have that right now with the Republicans and Democrats. We certainly don't. That is just a uniparty. The uniparty right and the uniparty left are advancing the same agenda regardless. But there is a possible future where we have something like political parties that work together on things, even if the leadership, in quotes, doesn't want to go along with it. So they're able to bypass the leadership and bring something to the floor 
if it has been in committee for over 30 days while the House is in session and has not been brought to the floor. Number two, a majority of the House must support a discharge petition for it to be successful. At least 218 members of the House must support a discharge petition for it to come to the floor. This makes a discharge petition a difficult maneuver. Members of the minority party who want to bring forth a discharge petition must convince a certain number of majority party members to support the legislation, which is difficult because majority party members are often reluctant to buck their own party leadership. Most discharge petitions, therefore, fall short of 218 votes. And in our normal controlled opposition paradigm, where Democrats and Republicans fight like cats and dogs and they can never agree on anything. And when the quote unquote electorate, not that we have real elections, understands our politics that way, then all of that is probably true. But we are moving past that, as we can see in the Senate right now. They are not shy of showing us the uniparty anymore because they believe, or maybe they have no options left, but let's say they believe, they really believe that the uniparty can still attract a majority of Americans in opposition to Donald Trump. Now, that's definitely not true, but I can see why they would go forward under that understanding or at least the illusion of that understanding. But this is one of those situations where you can imagine some number of Republicans in the House being more than happy to join Democrats in bringing this to the floor through a discharge petition. If you can get more than half of the House to support bringing this bill to the floor, it doesn't matter what Speaker Mike Johnson does. That is what we are being told and what we are being shown right here. Let's see if it happens. Number three. Discharge petition rules were changed in 1993 so that members could no longer support petitions in secret. Prior to the 103rd Congress, members could back a discharge petition anonymously. Their identities would only be revealed if the measure were successful. Since 1993, however, the identities of all signatories to a discharge petition are disclosed as soon as they sign on. One effect of this is that congressional leaders can identify potential discharge petition signers and put direct pressure on them to oppose the measure, which often leads to discharge petitions falling short of the majority required to pass. So they used to be able to do it anonymously, and then House leadership convinced the rest of the House to give that up so that they would be known immediately by leadership if they thought about going to this discharge petition method. That way, House leadership could maintain all the power controlling what gets brought to the floor, which is one of the most important powers you can have in Congress. If Nancy Pelosi, for instance, controls what gets brought to the House floor, then anything that is brought to the House floor has to be approved of by Nancy Pelosi. And if Nancy Pelosi is the most corrupt politician in the country, then she has to be getting something every time she's going to approve bringing a piece of legislation to the floor or the people who control Nancy Pelosi have to be getting something. So in 1993, they consolidated that power to increase their control, the leadership's control over what comes to the floor. Number four, the last successful discharge petition was filed in 2015. While numerous discharge petitions are filed each Congress, successful ones have become exceptionally rare, with only two eventually becoming law since 1993. 
So how about that? They take away the ability to sign on to a discharge petition anonymously and successful discharge petitions simply vanish. The last was in 2015 when the U.S. Export-Import Bank's authorization was due to run out. That year, the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee refused to hold a hearing or move reauthorization legislation. So the bipartisan duo of U.S. representatives Dave Reichert of Washington and Denny Heck of Washington resorted to a discharge petition signed by a majority of House members to force the legislation to the floor. More than 40 Republicans joined Democrats in supporting the measure. So a small portion of the uniparty right joined the uniparty left to bring to the floor something they otherwise would not have been able to bring. Our media calls that bipartisan. In reality, it is unipartisan. Number five, and this is specifically addressing the bill they were discussing last year, but it sounds like this is the same one they're continuing to discuss. Democrats will need five Republicans to support their discharge petition to raise the debt ceiling. With all 213 Democratic members in the House expected to back the discharge petition, Democrats will need at least five Republicans to join their ranks to force their debt ceiling bill to the floor. Some have pointed to Republicans representing districts won by President Biden in 2020 as potential targets to support, despite Democrat organizations targeting those same members in next year's elections. But most reports suggest that Republicans are unlikely to effectively cede control of the debt ceiling vote to minority leader Hakeem Jeffries unless the debt ceiling situation becomes unbearably dire. I'm fairly certain that this is what was referenced in the Hill article from yesterday about the passage of this Senate package. Let's look at that again. Democrats have a quote unquote ripe discharge from last year's debt limit showdown that already has 213 signatures. And so they expect that some of the progressives in the Democrat caucus are going to remove their names from that because they don't want funding for Israel. They are supporting Palestine in that situation. These are the people saying that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. And so they're going to take their names off. That means that Republicans in the House, we would need more than five of them. Who knows? Maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30. And that, of course, is what they're trying to figure out right now. Do they have enough Republicans in the House who will go around Speaker Mike Johnson and join Democrats in bringing this to the floor? And it's not hard to understand if they're going to put their names on the line to involve themselves in this discharge petition in the first place. They will, of course, be happy to join Democrats voting for the package on the floor. Now, amusingly, this write up in real clear policy from last year that comes courtesy of the no labels party, that upstart third party that intended to run a presidential candidate. I'm not sure if there's any chance they might still, but they're good buddies with Liz Cheney. And it's interesting to think about how long all of this has been in the making. No labels, of course, wants this unipartisan compromise in every venue. They brand themselves as centrists. They brand themselves as attractive to supporters of the uniparty. Are woke Democrats too extreme for you? Are those progressives too extreme for you? Are you a Democrat who likes Israel and wants to see them glass Gaza? Well, join no labels 
And if you're from the Lincoln Project or you support Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis and you love foreign wars and global communism and hate Donald Trump, well, join No Labels. It's the party for people who don't know anything about politics except that they are always right every time they repeat what they heard on television. So it seems like they are ready to pull out all the stops. Mitt Romney said it himself. This is the most important vote they've ever taken. We don't get to find out why. At least they're not going to admit it. I mean, it might have something to do with the money laundering or the weapons trafficking or the human trafficking or the child trafficking or the child sex trafficking or the organ harvesting or the political corruption or the bio labs or the Ukrainian Nazi battalions or the Ukrainian Nazi battalions operating on American soil. Or it could just be that it's the ancestral seat of the Kazarian Mafia, but something over there seems to be really important. The Uniparty is willing to show themselves to the American public just to get this funding passed. And we are coming up on two major deadlines. We're going to hear a lot about this over the next few weeks. And if we're smart, we can take advantage of this by pointing out the existence of the Uniparty. Okay, so that's it for today. I may spend the day writing tomorrow. I also may consider doing a live stream for Substack subscribers on Rumble. I will absolutely send something out to let you know if that is what I end up doing tomorrow afternoon. But one way or another, very soon, I will be back at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 
You can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is canceledcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!